This being the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is a Sunday. We are uh, not going to be in 1 Thessalonians this afternoon. We will return to that quickly, soon. But today I want to talk to you, I want to preach to you about this day of Pentecost, which in the Old Testament is called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. So there will be a lot of, I guess, information and putting data together in this sermon. Uh, I trust it won't be too heavy for for an afternoon. But um, I want to give you the big picture of why this day is so glorious in God's purposes, in His redemptive purposes. Why it should matter to us. Very basic goal. I want you to know why Pentecost matters, what it means, why it matters. And if I've done that, I think I will have succeeded by God's help. <laughs> um, and I want to divide this into two parts. First of all, I want to talk to you about the Old Covenant, Pentecost. Then we'll talk about the New Covenant, Pentecost. Pretty simple. Old Covenant, Pentecost, and then New Covenant, Pentecost. We'll turn to three different texts starting out here to, to understand Pentecost in its Old Covenant origins, its Old Covenant context. First of all, Exodus chapter 34 briefly mentions this Feast of Weeks. In Exodus 34, God is, is stressing to Moses the three greatest feasts which Israel is to observe when they're in the land of promise. Uh, Verse 18 of Exodus 34, he says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, which actually uh, was an outflow of the the night of Passover, and sometimes it even got called the feast of Passover. Um, It was hard to distinguish between Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. He says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. Then down in verse 22 of that text, it says, You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and, uh, this is the third feast, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Elsewhere that's called the feast of tabernacles or of booths. My wife laughs at me when I try to say the feast of booths, and she thinks it sounds like the feast of booze. I try not to say that. Uh, The Feast of Booths, (laughs) get that TH in there, uh, or Tabernacles as the old King James had it, Uh, these temporary shelters they would construct. But it was also called the Feast of Ingathering. So Exodus 34, 23 says, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So this was one of three feasts. There were more feasts in Israel's calendar, but this is this one of three feast days at which all Israelite males were supposed to appear. If they didn't make it to other things like uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the, the, the New Year, if they didn't make it to the Day of Atonement, for instance, they were expected at least at the holy place which God would choose for himself for these three feasts. Now we know, if we know much about our Old and New Testaments put together, we know all sorts of huge significance, of course, for the Passover, not just for Old Covenant Israel, but what Passover pointed to in God's plan of redemption, right? 
And uh, in fact, God um, worked things out in his providence that Jesus actually died as the Passover lamb on the cross on Passover. Uh, if we think about the Feast of Booths or Feast of Ingathering, there is great significance there. It is actually spoken of in prophetic texts to picture the day when the nations are gathered into God from their pilgrim wanderings on the earth. When, well, I'm combining two things there. I'll back up. <clears throat> the picture of the day when the nations come to worship the Lord as one and the day when God's people are done with their wilderness wanderings in this world and and they rejoice before God's presence in the eternal state. There's much about uh, the future bliss and blessedness of God's people at the end of their wilderness wanderings in the Feast of Booths or in gathering. It, it's an, and uh, each of these feasts has something to do with a harvest. But, of course, the Feast of Ingathering is, um, pictures in some ways the harvest at the end of the age. But what about the Feast of Weeks that's in between those two? Is there further significance for that? I think you'll see that there is great further significance for the Feast of Weeks in the New Testament. But again, we're just right now laying the foundation from the Old Covenant. Uh, turn to Leviticus 23, and this is really the, the text that goes into the most detail in one place, probably, about the Feast of Weeks. Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 21. Again, this is in a, another context where, again, the Lord is speaking of the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Uh, first, he talks about the weekly convocation, the Sabbath. Then he talks about the Passover. And now he talks about the feast. Uh, well, then he talks about the feast of first fruits, actually, which corresponds to Christ, the first fruits being risen from the dead in the New Testament. Then we get to verses 20, uh, 15 through 21, excuse me, 15 through 21, where it speaks of the Feast of Weeks. And you'll see, you can easily get confused. There's aspects of first fruits in this Feast of Weeks as well. But in this context, there would just been a Feast of First Fruits mentioned, which is closer to the Passover. Um, but the Feast of Weeks, verse 15, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Now notice, before we read further, um, it was common at each of these feasts to have various sorts of sacrifices and offerings. In fact, we won't go there, but the book of Numbers lays out uh, certain sacrifices for the Feast of Weeks. But what, it, what stands out here is this, this presentation of two loaves of bread that now, remember we had just had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, now these, these loaves of bread have been baked with leaven. And they are first fruits to the Lord, it says. Verse 18, And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, 
with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation, a day of assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. Then, uh, one other text I'll just read quickly. Deuteronomy 16. Remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law before Israel actually crosses into Canaan. So Moses is rehearsing a lot of these things again for the second generation that came out of Egypt um, that are about to enter the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy 16, verse 8, he says, For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, speaking of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And here the theme in Deuteronomy is the, the, the rejoicing and the feasting. Verse 11 of this text. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So we've seen this reference to the Feast of Weeks. So it's counting a number of weeks out from a certain point near the Passover. And that's where it gets the name Pentecost. That's from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Penta, five, right? Uh, Pentecost. Um, because, uh, I'll just read Alan Ross here from his commentary. He says, The completion of the grain harvests was marked by the festival that came 50 days later. The Feast of Weeks, or Shabuoth, uh, Exodus thirty-four twenty-two. It was given the name Pentecost in the Septuagint because of the 50 days. Remember, by the way, this corresponds to uh, Jesus having been 40 days with his, his disciples after his resurrection, then he ascended to heaven. Then there were a few more days before the day of Pentecost came. Um, so Jesus was waiting specifically for this day to send the Holy Spirit. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Alan Ross also says, In the sequence of events, the first, the barley sheaf, was brought to the sanctuary just after Passover. Forty-nine days later, the last cereal crop, wheat now, ripened. But now the Israelites had to bring loaves of bread made from wheat. This festival celebrated with the, harvest, with the harvests produced, or more precisely, what the Lord had produced for them. Then he says something really interesting. The Feast of Weeks also came to commemorate the giving of the law that took place shortly after Passover and the exodus from Egypt. Have you heard of that before? The Feast of Pentecost, and as I read, you know, you want to be careful and not pick up on one guy's loony idea that's out there on the fringes. 
But, but as you read more, this is not an isolated idea. Um, but Pentecost also, uh, and we'll see why, Pentecost in Jesus' day was very much associated with the day when God thundered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Uh, because it seemed, and, and Jewish tradition um, took the text of Scripture this way, it seems that we can calculate the exact day when that happened, and it was seemed to be the same day here as Pentecost. So secondly, I want to explore this second dimension. Um, I don't think I mentioned the first dimension. Sorry about that. Um, as we think about Old Covenant Pentecost, first of all, it was the day to present the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So it was a presentation to the Lord of the first fruits of a harvest. But secondly, Scripture does seem to um, support the fact that it was the day God descended in fire to declare the Old Covenant law. The day God descended in fire to declare the Old Covenant law. You say, really? Was the law given on Sinai on the day later known as Pentecost? Well, it certainly seems so. Um, Alfred Edersheim, in his book on the temple at the time of Jesus, an old Jewish writer, he says, according to unanimous Jewish tradition, which was universally received at the time of Christ, the day of Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which the Feast of Weeks was intended to commemorate. Thus, as the dedication of the harvest, commencing with the presentation of the first Omer on the Passover, was completed in the thank offering of the two wave loaves at Pentecost, so the memorial of Israel's deliverance appropriately terminated in that, in that of the giving of the law. Just as, he says, making the highest application of it, the Passover sacrifice of the Lord Jesus may be said to have been completed in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19, where we get where this idea comes from, these dates come from. Exodus 19 verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And here, the old commentary Matthew Poole uh, says this. He says, this is set down thus accurately because it gives an account of the original of the, original of the Feast of Pentecost. Because the giving of the law, which was three or four days after this time, was 50 days after the Passover, whereof 46 or 47 were passed at their first coming to Sinai, reckoning from the 15th day of the first month when they came out of Egypt to this time. So again, um, various commentators acknowledge this is in the text here. And by the way, this is consistent with some of these other feasts of the, the Jews. It'll have one text that'll give one purpose for a feast, but then other texts will mention a different purpose for the same feast, different significance. Uh, but in verse 9, then, of this same text... It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. I mentioned that in this morning's sermon, the purification. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the very next verses, next chapter, are the famous Ten Commandments passage. When God declares, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on. He declares the law to them in thunder as he has come down in fire. Deuteronomy 9.10 reflects on this day, and it says that Moses is saying, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. Interesting in the Greek Old Testament, it's the day of the ecclesia, of the church. Uh, but this, this is not the new covenant church, this is the old covenant assembly. But on this day, and as I said, it, it seems to have at least been in the minds of everyone in Jesus' day on Pentecost. On this day, God thundered the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law, out of the midst of the fire. And he did that to constitute the Old Covenant assembly, congregation. But on another day, seemingly the same day of the Jewish calendar, God sent fire upon Christ's disciples. So they might proclaim the gospel and thus constitute the new covenant church. So here we come to the new covenant Pentecost where we try to put it all together a bit. Acts 2 is the obvious text to turn to next. Acts 2 and verse 1. And I challenge you, though we are all probably familiar with this text, to read it carefully again. Make sure you don't miss anything. Acts 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, the writer, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, makes a special point here that this was the day of Pentecost. And there's discussion what he means by the wording, but you could say when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. <laughs> here we have an ESV, when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. Who were all together in one place? Well, Acts chapter 1, it was Jesus' followers, the apostles, yes, the, uh, now the twelve, as Matthias had been added to their number, but also uh, more people. It was a total of about 120 disciples, it says, gathered in an upper room, men and women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others. Men and women, maybe about 120 people, gathered together. And it says they were all together in one place, later it calls it a house, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So not a wind, but a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. Very unusual. And, verse 3, Divided tongues as of fire... Uh, you have um, older translations, cloven tongues of fire, and so 
you'll have pictures of the day of Pentecost with these like two horned uh, flames of fire. Um, others think more likely it just refers to the fact that they were divided as they came down to rest on each person there. Divided in that sense. But divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Play on words there. Tongues of fire, now they speak in other tongues, other languages. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, at this sound, apparently the sound like a mighty rushing wind, it was so mighty a sound that people were attracted to find out what this was. But then there was the sound of people speaking not just in Greek or not just in Aramaic, um, speaking in all these different languages of the world at once, fluently, perfectly. Uh, verse 6 again, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This wasn't, um, again, I'm not trying to dunk too hard on uh, other churches who view tongues a little differently, but you have to make the point here. This wasn't babble nonsense that no one could understand. Um, it was not an, some sort of mystical angelic language. These were very understandable languages for those who had grown up with them. <laughs> That's what the tongues were. And the purpose was for to actually communicate truth because these people understood what was being said in their own language. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? You might say, not to put too fine of a point on it, sort of, these aren't even like cultured Judeans down south. These are like the backwoods Jews from up in Galilee. And how did they learn to speak Persian fluently? Yeah. <clears throat> are not all these who are speaking Galileans? You can probably tell by how they look and stuff. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Probably the people who didn't speak the, any of those languages, they just heard a babble sound, that, and they assumed it's nonsense. They're drunk. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day. He's saying, who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? That's what he's saying, especially in that culture. Um, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, the slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Uh, The point being that this manifestation of the Spirit is announcing the day of the Lord is is at hand. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is the New Covenant Pentecost. And I'm not going to go on. I think you're familiar with, hopefully, with Peter's sermon that he then preached about the risen Christ whom these Jewish people had crucified, but God had raised from the dead and exalted to his right hand. We'll get to that a little later. But what was this New Covenant Pentecost all about? Well, first of all, it was the day the Spirit descended in fire to declare the New Covenant Gospel. The day the Spirit descended in fire to declare the New Covenant Gospel. From heaven there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's helpful to understand, first of all here, mighty rushing wind that this so directly pictures the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus even used that illustration of wind, John 3, when he talked to Nicodemus about how the Spirit gives people the new birth. He said, you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. You can't tell where the wind came from, where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit, he says, right? But uh, in the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, those words for spirit can also mean wind or breath. And so there's some overlap of, of, um, there's overlap of of imagery uh, because the same word can be used for these, these different concepts. So Dennis Johnson, he has a fantastic treatment of, a short treatment, but good treatment of Pentecost in his Let's Study Acts book. He says, and the Spirit's life-imparting power is portrayed in the imagery of filling lungs with the breath of life. And he gives scripture references. Here the church's spiritual lungs were filled to declare God's mighty deeds. The sound of the Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting, just as the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle and temple long ago. He references Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8. The Spirit was consecrating a new sanctuary in which God would dwell among his people. But again, it, it, it's interesting that um, all the imagery is so perfect. It's, it's now the Holy Spirit himself being sent from heaven in a way he never had been sent before. To build the body of Christ. And then there were divided tongues as of fire. What should we think of when we think of fire coming down from heaven and then maybe fire resting above someone or something? What does that make you think of from the Old Testament? Now, there's there's more than one good answer here. Can you think of stuff? God had appeared in fire in the bush to Moses, hadn't he? And it was a very strange flame because it didn't consume the bush. He appeared in fire in the bush. God had displayed his glory over his tabernacle as a pillar of cloud and fire 
pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God, when the tabernacle and later the temple were dedicated as God's sanctuary, they were dedicated with sacrifices, and God accepted those dedications by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifices. And at the same time, he sent his glory to fill the sanctuary. So there's all this imagery of God coming down in fire. But now, it's interesting, it's like, it's, it's a mighty display, and yet such a gentle display, all, all wrapped up in one. The Spirit comes in fire, but it's these little tongues of fire that can split up, and there's one over the head of each believer. Because now God is coming as fire from heaven to rest in glory upon His new covenant church, which is now forever His temple, His holy sanctuary. Now, on the one hand, Paul speaks various places, doesn't he, about how the church is the temple of the living God. Corporately, we are as one body, together, the temple of God. God dwells with us. We are the place where God is, is worshipped as he uh, commands to be worshipped. We are the place of communion with God, together as one body. But then it also applies individually to us. Remember, Paul says your body each of you individually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. So it wasn't just that the church as a whole got the Holy Spirit and maybe the apostles were the ones who really got it on behalf of the rest of the church. No, every person in that room got it directly. John the Baptist had predicted to Israel, when he preached a baptism for repentance, to signify repentance, in Luke 3, John answered them all, I, ba I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. But there's more than one possible reference there to baptizing with the Holy Spirit in fire. Yes, the fire of judgment would be brought on the last day by Christ. But also the fire which brought warmth and light to the church to testify. And in Acts chapter 1, just the chapter before where we are now... Jesus had told his disciples right before he ascended to heaven, he'd said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And same context, a few verses down, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There was also this prophetic utterance um, back here in Acts chapter 2. It says, after the sound like a mighty rushing wind, after the tongue, divided tongues of fire, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, familiar language from the Old Testament, often for someone being able, being enabled to speak as a prophet, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it was really unusual. They were speaking in unlearned languages. 
But that was also a prophetic utterance. It was speaking directly from God, in a sense. And so this was the Holy Spirit filling his people, especially on this occasion, with prophetic utterance. Now compare that to Numbers chapter 11, for instance. Um, Back under the Old Covenant, there wasn't this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Uh, Men, women, free, slaves, uh, all as one body. Um, The Holy Spirit was poured out on specific people to accomplish specific tasks. But there was this occasion in Numbers 11 when Moses uh, gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and uh, the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And it says, as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Kind of like the fact that that just because the church prophesied in the beginning, it doesn't, doesn't mean we have the gift of prophecy today, by the way says this was a one-time thing to show that they had the Holy Spirit. They prophesied one time, but they did not continue doing it. And then it says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, uh, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses stopped them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So there's this this concept in the Old Testament that we haven't reached, under the Old Covenant, we haven't reached the perfect state of affairs. The perfect state of affairs would be that God would pour out his spirit equally on all his people. And a good sign of that would be prophecy, right? So Joel chapter 2, which, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. Joel 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, etc. But again, they are speaking, the, the way they're prophesying is they're speaking in the languages, of, the languages of the divided nations. The way Luke words it, he says that men from every nation under heaven were there that day. Now, of course, that's hyperbole. It's not, I don't think literally the Aztecs were there um, on the day of Pentecost. That's not the point. <laughs> or the Chinese. Um, but from all parts of the known world and just representative of the entire world, even representative reflecting the table of nations from Genesis chapter 10. So the whole world was in a sense represented on the day of Pentecost, and there were both Jews and proselytes. So both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles were there. And they were all hearing this in their own language. Though God had divided the tongues of the nations at Babel, and that's the wording used in the Old Testament, dividing their tongues. Now he's indicating he will bless every nation under heaven in Abraham's offspring, the Messiah. They would each hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own tongue. 
And then those gathered out of the nations would be one despite their divided tongues. How many languages do you think are spoken in the church of Jesus Christ today around the world? I certainly have no idea, but it's got to be a lot because the church stretches around the globe. And yet we are one. It doesn't matter. I'll be a... I'll get my dig in as a Baptist here. We don't have to be Roman Catholic and have the Latin Mass everywhere to say we are one. <laughs> um, our divided languages don't matter. We're still one in Christ. We all hear the same gospel and believe the same gospel. Um, Dennis Johnson says this, God spoke his good news directly to the nations in the languages of their hearts. The instantaneous, miraculous gift at Pentecost foreshadowed the labors of preachers, Bible translators, and others through the centuries, through whom the Spirit still spreads Jesus' fame through all the earth. And then, as I said earlier, yes, then the climax of all of it was Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord in Christ. Because none of this would make sense apart from the gospel at the heart of it. The whole point of this was that now the gospel had been accomplished. Jesus had died according to the scriptures for our sins. He, he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And now on that basis, not only Israel, but all the nations could be reconciled to God. That was what the Spirit's message was, that he was sent to propagate throughout the earth. And of course, as people often point out, you even see uh, an interesting difference between Peter, for instance. When Jesus was still walking on earth with him, Peter had times when he was a coward. And yet on this day, the Spirit comes and he is no coward. He looks 3,000, well, more than 3,000, but there are 3,000 who believed. He looks thousands of Jews in the face and says, you murdered your Messiah. And you're not right with God. You, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit was coming to empower the church for a specific mission. The mission of spreading the gospel. So, New Covenant Pentecost. Well, it was the day the Spirit descended in fire to declare the New Covenant gospel. And secondly... Bringing it full circle to the first fruits idea. It was the day Christ brought in the first fruits of the gospel harvest. The day Christ brought in the first fruits of his gospel harvest and presented them to God. At the end of Peter's sermon, Acts 2, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus and you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So just as the, as the first fruits were turned into loaves of bread, so, and, and I'm getting this from Alan Ross, um, he's pointed this out, so Christ's death and resurrection produced the body of Christ. Believers who were gathered into the church on this day of Pentecost. Alan Ross also says, just as Pentecost commemorated the giving of the law to Israel at Sinai, the Lord chose this day to send his spirit and unite the body of Christ. According to the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, the spirit will write the law on the hearts of the believers. And just as the loaves of bread made with leaven were placed before the Lord, the believers, imperfect in many ways, were presented to the Lord. Here then is what the first fruits of the resurrected Christ produces. And they, in turn, are the first fruits of the new creation. See Ephesians 1.10. Alfred Edersheim says much the same thing, so I won't read that quote as well. But note Paul's comparison and contrast of the giving of the law through Moses with the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. And so again, it seems very fitting that on this day when the Jews had on their minds the giving of the law, now God gave them something better. He gave them his spirit. Second Corinthians 3, verse 2. Paul says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, referring to the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, that is, the law can only condemn on its own, but the spirit gives life. So what should Pentecost mean to us? Well, it means we have the power of the Holy Spirit sent by the risen Christ to form and fill his church, his gospel-proclaiming New Covenant Church. We're not here stuck on our own until Jesus decides to come back for us. He's not left us orphans. He sent us the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, whom he has received from the Father. We have the third person of the Trinity right here with us. And of course, yes, Jesus in his, in his divine nature is everywhere present as well. But the Spirit, we mean more than that the Spirit is just here and can see us. What we, we mean with, by the Spirit being with us is that God is with us in the sense of being for us. We aren't left to our own devices. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You all have an anointing from the Holy One, John says. So in light of these great and precious truths, that we cannot see the Holy Spirit, He came in a visible manifestation on the day of Pentecost, but we know He's here, working in our hearts, working through us to bring the nations in. So as Paul would say, be filled with the Spirit to declare the wonderful works of God.
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you're filled with that spirit. That word which the spirit breathed out. The sword of the spirit. Be equipped by the spirit. Open your mouths to make known the gospel. Pray in the Holy Spirit as the scripture tells us to do. Pray that his fire would be seen and felt throughout the earth. And guard what the Holy Spirit has entrusted to us. That's the last thing. Uh, I know I'm over time, but um, this is the last text I want to bring to your attention. Obviously, there's so many directions we could go with this, but my main purpose was just to show you what's here in Scripture about Pentecost. But as we think about guarding what the Spirit has given to us, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. That's the truth of Pentecost, isn't it? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ received an immeasurable gift from the Father, and he poured it out on us on the day of Pentecost. So what are we doing with it? Are we grieving the Holy Spirit by keeping our mouths shut about the gospel? Because we don't think it will be well received. Are we perhaps grieving the Holy Spirit by how we, by how we uh, interact divisively with others in the same body, those who have the same Holy Spirit as we do? Or are we walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, but on task with the Holy Spirit? We have all the equipment we need. We are well equipped. We just have to use it. Are we endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And for the purpose of the church's mission, not just to be a good club here that's united, but to be a united force for the gospel to go forth in power. That's the message of Pentecost. And I trust it will stick with you this week. You're not your own and you're not on your own. You're part of one body with one spirit. And that's a blessed truth. Let's bow together in prayer. Holy Spirit, we do pray to you as truly God, one with the Father and the Son. We ask your forgiveness for how we have all grieved you in various ways. We have been so insensitive to the precious gift you are to us. You are the spirit of holiness, yet we live in sin so often. You're the spirit of grace, and yet we do not use that grace as we ought so often. Thank you that you are with us, testifying of Christ, exalting Christ in and through us, changing us, sanctifying us, and you have sealed us You are the Holy Spirit of promise by which we are sealed to the day of redemption.
You are the down payment of all God's promises to us. May we not forget you. May we not forget that we are yours. And Lord God, Holy Spirit, we ask that you will be pleased to make us an even greater force for the gospel where we are and then around the world. But may it start in our homes, in our places of business and work and education, even in our places of relaxation and entertainment. Wherever we interact with the world, may, may you be the force within us effectively sharing Christ. Help us not to forget our mission. And may we give you all the glory when you accomplish Christ's mission through us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.